Well, hopefully you're at Exodus chapter 16, and the title of my message is Manna. And I could add to that, what is it? Well, we don't know what it is. And today we are going to answer that great theological debate that has been plaguing Christian churches for the last 2,000 years. Manna, what is it? Cream of wheat or malto meal? We are going to settle that argument once and for all this morning by looking at what manna is. And in trying to identify manna, I didn't come up with either. I'm a more oatmeal kind of guy, okay? But reading this chapter and knowing that at the moment this manna was given and the people collected it and they observed it, they asked themselves, of course, contained in the word manna itself, it means, what is it? So I asked myself the question as I was spending time just simply reading God's Word and and spending time and meditating on God's Word. God, what is it? And I didn't come up with cream of wheat. I didn't come up with malto meal. I didn't come up with oatmeal. Manna, what is it? I'm going to tell you what it is. Manna given to the people is one of the greatest demonstrations of the grace of God in the Old Testament. Manna, what is it? It is the grace of God demonstrated. That's what manna is. And today we will be focusing in on the grace aspect of God giving his people this manna. Now some of you may be unfamiliar with this account, this historical account. I don't even like calling it a story because stories give the, uh, the indication that they may be fictional, but this actually occurred. As the children of Israel were freed from the bondages of Egypt, they began a wilderness journey between Egypt and the land of promise in which God had given to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was now about to fulfill in the leading of his people out of Egypt. But on the way, difficulties occurred. And in those difficulties, as God allowed certain circumstances to happen... God demonstrated himself to his people that his people then may know who their God is. And as they walked with him and in different circumstances that they experienced, they got to see God. For example, when they were in Egypt, they saw a holy God judging a nation for their pagan endeavors. As God specifically said that the judgments that he rendered against Egypt were directed towards the gods of Egypt. When they came to the Red Sea where God had led them, they saw a God of salvation as God provided a way for them through the Red Sea and dealt with their enemy once and for all in a very, very definitive act of finality. And now we come to the point where the children of Israel are now four weeks out. They are moving through the wilderness. And the grace of God will now be demonstrated in the context of murmuring and complaining and grumbling before God. A backdrop that absolutely brings forth and illuminates for us the grace of God amongst us all. And it's interesting because if this backdrop would have been one of gratitude and thankfulness, 
I don't know if we would have appreciated this action as much as we will this morning to discover that it wasn't in those circumstances in which God acted. It was the circumstances of complaining. Five times the word complaining is used in this chapter to describe the heart set of the children of Israel towards their God. To me today, I have to admit to you that I am burdened over the lack of appreciation that Christians seem to carry in their heart concerning the grace of God. I just got to be really candid with you this morning. I don't think we appreciate the grace of God nearly as much as we ought to. I think we often use the grace of God as a license to sin, which is appalling if you truly understand what the grace of God is all about. It is my endeavor this morning, my, uh, it is my objective, I should say, to bring you to a greater anticipation and a greater appreciation of the grace of God. That you truly appreciate what God has done for you. And that you truly appreciate that God has done for you what you personally could not have done for yourself. Because when we come here and gather as a church and we lift up our hands in our time of worship, we should be pouring our hearts before God, thanking Him for what He has done on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. And if we miss this, we are going to be lacking in our true appreciation of the depth of the grace, love, mercy of God. Unfortunately, the context of our society moves us to a position where we take things for granted rather than being grateful for what we have. So I come to you this morning to try to show you amongst our text this morning in Exodus 16, the grace of God. Pastor, what is the grace of God? That's a fantastic question and I'm glad you asked. The great pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, wrote this. What is the grace of God? He says, it is God's favor towards the undeserving. Grace lies behind the plan of salvation, but it also uh, is what brings salvation to us individually and effectually. Which is why the great Baptist preacher of the last century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, called it both the fountain and stream of salvation. Someone has made grace into an acrostic, calling it God's riches at Christ's expense. Others said that grace is favor shown to people who do not deserve favor at all, who indeed deserve the exact opposite. He went on further to say, what is grace? Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God towards humanity. As the Schofield Bible says, grace is the the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man. Dr. Henry Ironside, one of my favorite pastors, grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to one who has deserved the very opposite in what they have done. The Bible expresses it when it says, God demonstrated his own love towards us as this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God is gracious towards us, not on the basis of what we have done, but solely because of his nature to be gracious. I have to go on because there were just too many to limit it to just two. For the great Martin Lloyd-Jones said, what is grace? 
It is a term notoriously difficult to define. Grace essentially means unmerited favor, favor you do not deserve, favor you receive but to which you have no right or title in any shape or form of which you entirely are unworthy or undeserving of it. We may call it uh, condescending love, love coming down to us. But Jerry Bridges said it this way, and I thought he did a great job. While it is not wrong to consider God's uh, grace as unmerited favor, but that alone is inadequate. So here is the definition he believes captures the biblical meaning of grace. Grace is God's favor through Christ to people who deserve his disfavor. And Greg Laurie summed it up, I think, when he said this. I think one of the best ways to define grace is by contrasting it with other words like justice and mercy. Let's define justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Did you find the running definition theme through all of those? God giving us something that we do not deserve. I'm going to drive that home this morning. God's grace is the extension, Him giving us what we do not deserve. We have no right, no entitlement to it. We are not owed. He gives us to us because He is gracious and simply because we do not deserve it. That's God's grace. And that overwhelming aspect of God, God's grace, is so easily rendered mute by the simplest temptations of this world. Let me explain. Christians are easily moved from from a position of appreciation towards such grace to a position of ingratitude simply by the temptations of this world and specifically when it comes to the temptations of this world through felt needs. The children of Israel were about to abandon the grace of God and the understanding of the grace of God because they were thirsty. They were about to abandon their understanding of the grace of God because they were hungry. Their felt needs at the moment dictated to them that things were unfair, that God wasn't loving, that God wasn't merciful. And this position of ingratitude was manifested through their complaints. How easily are we moved today from the true appreciation of God's grace, His unmerited favor, giving us something we do not deserve? How easily are we moved when life becomes difficult? Or more simply put, when life becomes a little less comfortable than maybe we're used to. And then all of a sudden, we move from that position of great uh, appreciation to ingratitude by starting our complaints towards God. Starting our complaints towards God. That's exactly what we see in our text today. Because I will argue that God sparing them from the judgment that he was pouring out upon Egypt was God's grace. God delivering them through the Red Sea was not only an act of salvation, but an act of God's grace. Now he has a complaining people. 
and graciously. He says, I will provide for you what you need. I'm blown away at that, and I want you to be too. Because again, tomorrow when you wake up in the morning, I want you to thank God for the grace that he has given you. Because grace doesn't only accompany us at the moment that we get saved. Grace carries us day by day by day in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. As God continues to give us unmerited favor and carries us through the trials, troubles, and tribulations of this world, that's God's grace. When God allows us to rise above the circumstances of our life that would overwhelm us, that's God's grace. And that's what I want to appreciate today. And by the time that we come to the end of our teaching this morning, when we raise our hands up in worship and close this service, that we just simply thank God for God's grace. Because we do not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And we are so easily moved by the temptations of this world. When things become a little bit difficult, when things become a little bit uncomfortable, all of a sudden we resort to complaining against God. Completely forgetting all the things that God has done up until that point. All the things we should be thankful for, we forget them at that moment. Now in chapter 15, there's something you need to know. Before they were hungry, they were thirsty. And at the end of chapter 15, and I'll let you read this on your own, they came to a place where water was provided, but the water was bitter and they could not drink it, and they began to complain because they had no water. And so God instructed Moses to simply throw a tree into the midst of the water, and the water that was bitter, Mara, became sweet, and they were able to drink of that. God provided for them what they needed. And now such a short time later, they come to another point where once again they are complaining, this time because they are hungry. And we pick it up in verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all of the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to be full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, write in your Bible, over-exaggeration. Okay? Over-exaggeration, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather it a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and they shall, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to be full. 
For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses spoke to Aaron and said to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How many times did the word complaint arise there in our text. Not the prayers of his people. Not the petitions or the supplications of his people, but the complaints of his people. And people being who they are, as Moses and Aaron were figureheads here on this earth of God, their complaints first went to Moses and Aaron, and then they were before God, and Moses and Aaron said to them, rightfully so, your complaint is not with us. Who are we? We are incapable of doing anything. It is truly God in whom you complain against. Our first point this morning is God's grace is undeserved. And I want you to write something either in your Bible or on your notepad or on the person next to you, whatever works for you, on your hand. Please remember, write these words, God owes us nothing. God is not indebted to us at all. God owes us nothing. And I'm going to clarify what I mean about that this morning. Today, more than ever, we are living in a culture of entitlement. I don't have to make a great argument to support that. People expect things, don't they? Gratitude is at an all-time low. People don't seem to be willing to go out and to work and to earn for themselves. They are simply looking at someone else to give them what they need, and they expect it. Can you see how such a culture would foster an attitude of ingratitude towards the grace of God in our own life? If we as Christians now come to believe that God owes us something, we are truly never going to appreciate the grace of God as we should if we choose to think that way. And as we walk with God day by day, if we adopt that attitude, the slightest little inconveniences uh, that would cause the least bit of uh, uncomfortableness uh, in our life would, um, would move us to a position of grumbling, murmuring, and complaining against God. Now, let me ask you a question. In this congregation, this group today, do you know somebody in your own personal life that is a complainer? And you just, you don't even really want to be around them because every single time you get together with them, it doesn't matter where you are or what you are doing with this individual, they are always complaining. Nothing is ever good enough. You can go to your favorite restaurant and they can find something to complain about. They come over to your house, they find something to complain about. And even when they have nothing to complain about, they complain that they have nothing to complain about. Does everybody here know somebody like that? Yeah, I think we all do. And it's difficult, isn't it? 
And the last thing you want to do is to appease them or capitulate to them. You don't want to give in to their complaints and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, you're not okay. And you start smoothing their feathers and giving them everything they want. If you're like me, you're just the opposite. It's like, get out of here. <laughs> now, how many of you are sitting next to the person who complains a lot? Raise your hand. Oh, oh. I just want to see if anybody raised their hand. Chris, put your hand down in the back. No. It's difficult, right? Those are the people that you want to do the least amount for. I know I am that way. I am that way. I, I just, I can't move myself. I, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly reminded as a pastor, I need to be gracious and, and compassionate. But when I get together with those people, it's wrath of God time. I mean, it's just, you know, let's show the other aspects of God now because I just can't capitulate to this. Because you know what? You know, like I know, that the more you feed that, All you're doing is enabling further complaining. But what does God do here at this moment? All of his people are complaining. They're complaining to Moses. They just got over complaining about being thirsty in chapter 15. Now they're hungry and they're complaining to the point, and I I can't believe this, to the point where they are actually believing that it would have been better for them to remain in Egypt and die by the hand of the Lord as long as they died with their bellies full. When we had pots full of meat and bread that filled our stomach, we could have died by the hand of the Lord and died happy. But Moses, you've brought us out in the middle of this wilderness. Now, you have to understand the geography here because Elam was an oasis. It was a paradise. And I can see that as the children of Israel were traveling up to Elam, they would have said, Oh, look at this. This is sweet. This is beachfront property. This is fantastic. Just to discover it was a potty stop that God was going to continue to move them on. Now they're in the wilderness of sin, which uh, gives us certain thinkings, but I don't want you to go there because we can't substantiate that. Zin is more probably uh, appropriate. It's just an area, but it was like desert waste. There was like absolutely nothing around. It was flatlands. It was wastelands. It was Iowa. And, uh, you know, (laughs) and now they're grumbling. That's going to get a letter especially our radio show in Idaho. And they're like, what is this? We were perfect before in Elam, and now we're here, and now we're going to die. Don't you love people who over-exaggerate? Most complainers that I found also accompany that complainment with over-exaggeration. Everything becomes a great ordeal. Everything becomes a mountain out of a molehill. They over-exaggerate everything. And you know what the most ridiculous thing is about this entire text? And I don't know if you noticed this. We have no indication that they were starving. People weren't dropping dead on the side. People weren't dying of famine. They weren't dying of, uh, of disease. They weren't dying because they didn't have any food. These people were simply just hungry. Now, I know that when people get hungry, they kind of turn. And you have to wonder, is this demon possession or are they just hungry? Is this low blood sugar? Or should I be really fasting and praying now? People change when they get hungry. They weren't even starving. There was no evidence of famine whatsoever. And they had already concluded 
such things. God's grace. I will bring bread from heaven to feed them. In the evening I will provide quail for them, and they will be able to gather easily this quail for meat. And in the morning each and every day they shall be able to come out and to gather this manna that I will leave for them on the ground. And every day they shall gather enough for themselves. And on the sixth day they should gather twice as much because on the seventh day is a day of rest. And whatever they gather on the sixth day and prepare on the sixth day should carry them over on the seventh day that they may just sit and enjoy who I am, the Sabbath rest. And God is instilling in his people, he is showing his people that he is a gracious God. I will provide. But he does it with the caveat to test them. Do you notice that? Verses 4 and 5. I want to test them to see if they will keep my commands, my law. God knows what they are going to do before they do it. It isn't a mystery to him. He is not doing it to reveal to himself what his people are about to do. He is doing it so they may see for themselves what they are going to do. It reveals to themselves what they are going to do. See, they were complaining, and that Hebrew word for complaining is used very limitedly in the Old Testament to describe a dissatisfaction with one's personal circumstances. But if you further clarify that definition, you would have to add to that definition that the complaining is also attached to the fact that they are complaining over the dissatisfaction of their circumstances that God has provided for them. That's how you'd have to fully define that word. So they are not happy with where they are at with God. They're not happy for what God has provided for them, and now they are complaining. And God's grace is poured out. And I do it that I may test them, to see if they will keep my law, to see if they will obey me, not for his sake, but for their sake, so that they may know where they are before him. And once they see that they are deficient before God, it is to bring them to a place of brokenness before him that brings them into even a greater appreciation of the grace of God. Now they truly understand that they don't deserve what God is doing for them. And they're thankful. And they cry out to God to see the compassion and the mercy of God displayed in his grace. As we pick it up in verse 13, we see that some obey, but some do not. So it was that quail came at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness, there was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing in which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omar, which is a measurement at that time for each one's person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. The children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. 
So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered a little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any until the morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part until the morning, and it was bread with worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all... Uh, that remained to keep until the morning. So they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today uh, you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will be none. Now it happened, verse 27, of course, that some people didn't get the memo. No. Some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but, the Lord, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commands and my law? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day, so that the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it, was, and it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. God often uses very elementary things to describe and to teach us some of the most dynamic principles and aspects of his character. In his giving of the quail, which seems to indicate that the quail came in at a level that was very low to the ground and they were easily captured. For the Bible tells us that the men went out, the women went out, and simply used sticks and swatted the quail out of flight, out of the air as they flew by. Now it's interesting. Archaeologists have discovered hieroglyphics in Egypt as showing Egyptians catching these quail with nets. It seems to have been something that has occurred in other places, and it's a, it may be an act of their migration, but certainly it was a miraculous act because it happened every single evening for the children of Israel. So they grabbed their bats and they just whacked these things out of the sky as they came by, and they had their fill of meat. Every morning the manna would lay on the ground six days in a row and they would gather just enough for themselves in an omar. They couldn't keep anything more. If they did, which some did, it was bread with worms and stank. It went rotten. They couldn't use it and they had to go out and get it for themselves again. But on the sixth day they gathered twice as much as they needed. And one day they would eat the first portion and then they would cook the second portion on that same day and on the seventh day, they would eat of that second portion. And you, you get the concept. And, of course, some missed that memo. And they went out on the seventh day. And I can 
already hear the complaints possibly. Where's the manna that God promised? Well, he didn't listen carefully. He said he would provide enough for you on the sixth day so you'd have enough for the seventh. But all of this, all of this was to demonstrate God's grace and was to show them that he would provide for them all of their need. And he was going to take care of them. And he was going to see them through. And we're going to learn that God did this for 40 years as they wandered through the desert because of their unbelief and not allowing themselves to enter into the land in which he had for them. He provided for them. And it was to demonstrate in their obedience or in their disobedience where their own heart was before God. Many ask me as a pastor, does God test us? But you have to first qualify what that word testing actually means. It means to show what something is made of. It's mean to show what's inside circumstances that allow what's inside to come out. Testing. Now these circumstances of mere hunger pains led to the people to what? Praising God, thanking God, trusting God, holding on by faith to the promises of God. No, the circumstances allotted and manifested complaints, showing the people where their own hearts are. So has God brought circumstances into our lives to test us, to show us where we are truly at? Often that's what a trial is. In fact, in the New Testament Greek, the word trial and testing can be swapped interchangeably. Trials are often to show us where we are at with God. They allow us to see our own heart. God already knows what's there, so it's not a matter of failing or passing before Him. It's a matter of showing us where our own hearts are. Here we have an example of failure. But in the book of Job, we have the example of success. Where Job allowed the trials to occur... And he trusted by faith to see him through some of the most difficult, horrendous experiences of life that any one individual could incur in one particular lifetime. And he trusted God. And though Job at times seems to be frustrated with God and repeatedly said, I'd like to meet God and ask him a few things. Do you know that when Job actually got the chance, Job didn't ask him anything? See, often we move to complaining because we're not relying on the promises of God by faith. We are relying on false expectations. False expectations. There is nothing more frustrating than entering into an agreement with someone under a certain expectation just to find out that your expectation was wrong. The children of Israel had expectations. And when God didn't meet those expectations in the manner in which they thought he should, they started to complain. They weren't even starving. They were just merely hungry. And they begin to complain and murmur and grumble against God because their expectations have not been met. Do you know that this is at epidemic proportion here in our culture today? Individuals complaining against God because their expectations have not been met when those expectations have never been set by God but by they themselves. Or someone who promised them something and did not perform it. For example, we know that the Lord provides for us, but the caveat of that provision is the Lord supplies all that we need, correct? 
Changing one word in that sentence takes it from a promise to an expectation. That word is changing from need to want. God shall supply all of my wants. Don't you wish your Bible had that in there? I'm surprised that somebody hasn't actually published one yet. The All You Want Bible. It's all about you Bible. You are the center of everything Bible. You, the master of all things Bible, whatever you would like to call it. The new Bible of false expectations. God says he'll supply all that we need. If he hasn't supplied it, what does that tell you? You don't need it. How, how hard is that, right? It's difficult at the moment. It's difficult at that time. False expectations always bring about complaining, and complaining never solves anything. But today we live in a culture that seems to be predicated by the ideology of the squeaky wheel gets the most grease. I don't know if I could go anywhere without finding somebody who's complaining. If I go to my local real estate store, I always get behind the person who is complaining. Okay, it's not even the complaint department. It's the person that I'm behind at the cash register. They have 3,000 items, I have one, and they're complaining. Everywhere you go, people seem to be complaining. It's because they have an expectation of where way they thought their lives were going to go, and now it's not working out according to that expectation. Abandon the expectations that you may have and adopt the promises that God has clearly made to you in the Scriptures and you are going to be much happier as you walk through this life. One wrote this, Complaining doesn't solve the problem. And if we try to run away from the difficulty as the children of Israel did, as they tried to run from the difficult situation back to Egypt, we'll meet the same problems that we have but we're just in a new place and still have to solve them. Of course, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And the hearts of many of the Jews were not right with God. He went on to say, In our pilgrim journey through life, we live on promises, not expectations and explanations. When we heard, it is normal to respond and to ask why. But it is the wrong approach to take often. For one thing, when we ask God that question, we are assuming a superior posture and giving the impression that we're in charge and God is accountable to us. God is sovereign and doesn't have to explain anything to us unless he wants to. Asking why also assumes that if God did not explain his plans and purposes to us, we'd better understand everything perfectly and feel better about how we feel. I read that to you because it's a harsh statement, but it's coming from one of the most loving pastors, Warren Worsby, that I have ever read. And it is so true. When we live for expectations and explanations, we often miss the point of what God is actually doing. Showing us where we are at to draw us closer to Him and to bring us into a a deeper understanding of God. The third point I want to make is God's grace points to Christ. We already saw that God's grace is not deserved. We saw that God's grace can be tested. And our third point is God's grace points to Christ. Look at me with verse 32. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, that is the manna, to be kept for your generations. 
that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put it in the omer, put an omer of manna into it, excuse me, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came and inhabited the land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omar is one-tenth of an ephod. I'm, I'm glad verse 36 there really clarifies things for me. A couple pints, that's what we would be accustomed to. A couple pints, that's what an omar is. He wanted them to keep as a memorial a portion of that manna to look forward as they look back. That something greater was going to occur. It was God's desire that this was a life lesson for them for all generations. Something was being established here at this moment that was so significant that they were meant to remember it over and over and over and over and over again. Actually, this Omar of manna actually made it into the Ark of the Covenant, according to Hebrews 9.4, with the tablets and the budding rod of Aaron, to be a reminder to the nation of Israel of that which God has done for them. See, it wouldn't be until some 1,600-1,700 years later that a carpenter from Nazareth, one who is merely 30 years old, we begin to bring clarity to this manna. And that's why I stated that manna, what is it? Don't concentrate on the food itself. Concentrate on why it was given and what it was meant to demonstrate. For Jesus himself in John 6 tells us that he is the fulfillment of what God had promised there in the manna. God's grace ultimately demonstrated through the coming of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. The grace of God. Now that we understand grace as being given something by God that we do not deserve, knowing that, how do you feel about Jesus right now? You did not deserve Him. He did not have to come. He, God owed you nothing. And God in His grace and in His mercy and in His compassion sent His only begotten Son. And if you turn with me to John 6, I just want to quickly read for you in closing a portion of this. And I want you to take this and meditate it on uh, for yourself. Really, the verses 22 through verse 40 of chapter 6, I would encourage you to read on your own to fully understand. But here, I want you to pick it up in verse 26. And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were full. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God himself has sent his seal upon him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? For what work will you do? 
For our fathers ate manna in the desert, and it was written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that my Father gives me will come to me, and the one who will come to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that out of all those he has given me I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last days. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Whatever they experienced in the wilderness climaxed in the person of Jesus Christ. And He went on later as He begins to articulate even more as you read further on in chapter 6. But understand that this manna given to them was a simple elementary demonstration of the miraculous work of God motivated by the grace of God that would one day lead to Jesus Christ himself. For every day they ate of the manna, the next day they were hungry. Every day that they drank of the water from the pond or the, the lake of Marah, they were thirsty once again in a short period of time. Jesus saying, I'm going to settle all of that. He's certainly speaking spiritually here. Don't live for your temporal needs. Don't live for your temporal wants, your felt needs, your, your fleshly appetites. There's something greater and it's me. There's something more and it's me, he is saying. For I will sustain you uh, and allow you to rise above those circumstances time and time again if you'll only trust me. When he approached the woman at the well, he said, if you draw from this well again in John 4, you're going to draw of this water and you're going to take of it and you're going to thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. Same principle. Over and over and over again, he talks about being the food and the drink that we need to sustain us, to give us life. Manna was life-giving to the people in the wilderness. That's what they survived upon. And if we are to survive, we must believe in Him. If we are going to live on, we must believe in Him. So this act of grace that was demonstrated in Exodus 16 was fulfilled in the coming person of Jesus Christ. And now that we know that we deserved nothing and earned nothing and God owed us nothing, in any way, shape, or form, when you look at Jesus this, from this moment going forward, I encourage you to appreciate him with a greater depth of love and appreciation than you've ever had before. He didn't have to do what he did. We must not take the grace of God for granted and become disobedient, but allow that grace to move us to obedience. Grace is the, one of the greatest motivators next to love to move us into obedience to God rather than to disobedience towards God. The grace of God.
It is never a license to sin. Thinking, well, I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. You are spitting in the face of God when you adopt such an attitude. And I hope that isn't too crass, but I wanted to make my point clear. When we complain over felt needs and our moments of being uncomfortable, we are denying and we are in a position of ingratitude towards the grace of God. We must not allow our felt needs of this world to move us to the complaints against God. Now, do you realize this is so important, guys, that in the parable of the sower, Jesus said that some would receive the seed, but when the cares of this world became apparent to them, what did they do? They abandoned the gospel. That's how, that's how powerful felt needs can be to move us away from God. And thirdly, we must understand that it was God's grace demonstrated at the cross for you and I. So whenever you doubt the grace of God, you look to the cross. Whenever you doubt the love of God, you look to the cross. And you should be assured that the grace of God and the love of God has been shown towards you who believe because of the act of that selfless sacrifice that was made on your behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. So manna, what is it? It is the grace of God demonstrated.